Peace be with you. Uh, people are searching. Uh, people are searching for serious uh, answers to serious questions. And this is something that we start to deal with as we are, are young. And these questions uh, quite often uh, continue with us as we grow throughout our, our lives. Uh, Steve Jobs is well known as an entrepreneur. He's the, I think he's the founder, but he was the chairman before he passed away of the Apple Corporation. Uh, you know, Apple. And uh, a story uh, comes from him when he was really young and he had seen something in the newspapers that uh, indicated that these children were suffering in far-flung regions of the world, and this really troubled him as a young person. And so on Sunday morning, he came to church, and he even brought his copy of the newspaper. He opened up, and he showed it to the pastor, and his question was, was, does God see this? Does God see this? That's a serious question, right? Looking for a serious answer. Rabbi Harold Kushner uh, you know, his ministry over, over several, several decades, he recalls this marriage, the beautiful marriage relationship, uh, this husband and wife, and uh, they loved each other, but uh, the husband was dying, uh, and he was dying slowly, and he was becoming so weak that he couldn't, you know, get out of his bed uh, many days. And so the wife would just lie beside her husband in bed, holding his hand and talking to him. And um, her questions were about, you know, why, why if love is so important, why if love is such a meaningful part of our lives that we try to start, strive for, why are there so many times when love hurts like this does? And that was her very serious question, right? And she knew that a day was coming when she would talk to him, she'd, she'd call out for him and she wouldn't be able to hear his voice back, uh, where, where she would really long to feel her hands squeezed. Um, as a sign of, of, of presence, care, support, and that would no longer be there. And so her question was, is love is something that's so central to our lives, why does it hurt so much? And around this time of year, people ask big questions, right? In days like today, uh, Remembrance Sunday, and uh, many of you will be a part of Remembrance Day services at Cenotaphs or elsewhere, and we look upon the pain and, and the difficulties in the world, it's like there's so many of them, and the difficulties just go on and on, and we see bloodshed, we think about lives lost in the past, and we think about conflict in the world that is continuing to go on, which we will pray for in our prayers of the people and bring attention uh, to that. And people wonder, and because of all these questions, and because people are seeking these serious answers, and because it's so big, there is a temptation really just to downplay or trivialize the questions. Right? Maybe we just don't want to wrestle with them. Maybe it's just too much work. Uh, maybe we just want to look the other way from the challenging questions uh, because they're just really hard to answer. Uh, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. When people come to him with serious questions, he provides them with serious answers, and he, and he provides them with, with wisdom and hope and encouragement for the living of difficult days because we don't get to have a say whether or not we live through a life of comfort. Who has a life without any hardship at all? I don't know that that person exists. And so Jesus provides wisdom for us, for encouragement, for hardship, and for the questions that we ask, even through difficult times. And today's text, I think, teaches us something about how to wrestle with and take these questions seriously, and at the same time, how we might help others who are maybe wrestling with some questions themselves. And so we're going to open our scriptures to John chapter 12, and this is a part of our journey through the Gospel of John. And, uh, you know, one of the things we always have to remember is that John was an apostle. He was one of those 12 apostles. So he's talking with Jesus. He's walking with Jesus. He was there. And so this has been preserved for us. And we're going, you know, verse by verse, line by line through the gospel. And we come to chapter uh, 12. 
Uh, now, last week, we had looked at the story of, remember, uh, Mary's wholehearted and costly devotion. Remember, she poured out $30,000 worth uh, of nard in an anointing act of Jesus. So we looked at that last week. And, and really, what, one of the things that's intensifying in the, in the Gospel of John right now as we go through it is that there's two kind of main responses to Jesus. One is devotion, like we saw with Mary, or even just belief in the purpose of the gospel, it says towards the end, is that, you know, so that people might believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so people are re- reacting favorably. He's teaching with authority. He's doing these incredible things. So people are reacting favorably. But the other main reaction is one of hostility. People are you know, threatening, and these are usually kind of the power brokers around the temple system and some other things, but people who are guardians of the status quo, and they really resist Jesus and his message. And at this point in the gospel, they are conspiring to uh, murder him. Now, also, by way of context, remember that we are now approaching uh, the final week of his death. We're entering into that final week of his death, his torture, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And so he and a bunch of, uh, you know, the other disciples, of course, and a bunch of people are gathered in Jerusalem for the annual Passover festival. That's when it happens, uh, around the time of when we celebrate Easter, right? And so they're there, and that's the annual remembrance of when God uh, liberated he, uh, the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. Remember, you know, Moses and Aaron, let my people go, and the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, the whole bit. And so they're there remembering God's deliverance of them. Um, <clears throat> now, last week, after the story of Mary, if you're following along in your, in your Bibles, You notice that the next story is the triumphal entry of Jesus. And that's a passage we often look at at Palm Sunday. You know, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord and the palm branches. We actually already looked at that on Palm Sunday itself because I wanted us to line up with kind of the global church and what people are talking about. And so we are going to skip to verse 20, okay? And I'm reading from the ESV. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, Okay, so this kind of sets the passage, who are the Greeks? So people who speak Greek, obviously. Um, but these are most likely what the Bible calls God-fearers. So these are people who fear God, they, they, they want to worship God, learn more about Him. Uh, they're not full converts to Judaism, and so they're probably worshiping at the temple. They would have been in that outside courtyard. They wouldn't have been allowed to go into the inner courtyard. But these are people who have some sort of interest, and I think that Now, one of the things that the story does is it shows us Jesus' broad-based appeal. So beyond just the Jewish people, other people, other people are hearing about him. They're hearing his message. They're seeing the incredible things that he does, and they are really captivated by him. I came across something in some of my reading called pupil dilation. Okay, So pupil dilation. So apparently, scientifically and biologically, uh, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, when someone sees someone else who is really attractive, their pupil gets bigger. Um, and it's like, it's like they want to drink in with their eyes more of what they're seeing, right? Pupil dilation. Um, so they're like, oh, wow, this is really, this is really captivating me. Uh, it also happens in other ways. Um, poker players, you know how sometimes they wear sunglasses? Um, <clears throat> uh, pupil dilation can also happen when a poker player is excited about the hand that they have. And they don't want the other players to notice that this is happening, that they have a good hand. And so they're actually masking. There's actually a, 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 a legitimate reason for that. Um, and the reason I raise that here is because I think with these Greeks and other people, the more they hear about Jesus, the more they learn about him, they have heart dilation. It's like their hearts are, and, and their minds are just more open, and they're so captivated by Jesus, they want to drink in more and more of him. That's partly what this story is about. So these came to Philip, okay, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, by the way, you should know that Philip is a Greek uh, name. 
And so, uh, and also Bethsaida in Galilee, so it's in the north, and it is known from that time to have a lot of Jewish people, but also a lot of Greek-speaking people. And so maybe they're like, oh, wait a second, this guy's kind of like us, and so maybe he's going to help us with a request. This is the guy who's actually going to lead us to Jesus. Um, so let's say you're in a foreign country, and you're in, you're, in, you're in trouble, you need some help. And you find someone, there's someone else, and they've got a backpack, and they've got a can of flag on that backpack. Maybe you think, I'm going to go and tap them on the shoulder, because maybe we've got something in common. Maybe they're going to be more likely to, to help me with whatever I'm um, needing help with, right? And so you kind of get the sense, the same thing here. Maybe this guys are friendly. And so Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And verse 23, and Jesus answered them. Now, <clears throat> Who does Jesus answer? Answer them. Well, is it just Andrew and Philip? Uh, maybe. It's probably more likely that they have brought these Greeks to him. And Jesus answered them. Notice, by the way, he doesn't engage in small talk. He doesn't even ask them what they want to know. He just launches into this very heavy mini-speech. Okay? And this is what he says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now talk about a way of kind of starting a, a speech with someone who wants to come and see you and talk to you, Right? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So what does the hour mean? So up to this point in the gospel, there's been several times when Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But now all of a sudden, his hour is come. So his, his hour, that language in the gospel, really refers to a moment of decisive victory. A moment of decisive victory. That's what the hour is. For the Son of Man, which is Jesus' way of referring to himself, to be glorified or to be exalted, to be lifted up. And so here Jesus is referring to his uh, crucifixion, uh, dying for the rest of us. Now as the outside world looks on that crucifixion, uh, they're going to see this is a moment of shame and Jesus' defeat and humiliation, but we see it through the eyes of God and we know what is really happening. Actually, it's a moment of greatest glorification because he's dying sacrificially for the rest of us. And that is the decisive moment, the crucifixion, the empty tomb, the decisive moment in human history which proves triumphant over sin, death, darkness, evil. So this is the moment, and this hour has come, right? And so as we go through the gospel from here on in, things are going to get more and more intense. The pressure is, people are hunting for Jesus. He's about to be tortured and crucified, but we know it's for great and ultimate purposes. Now, I think, I think an illustration helps make the point, and I think it's a really appropriate illustration given that today is Remembrance Sunday, and that Remembrance Day is upon us, and it's an illustration that's shared by a professor named Oscar Coleman. And he says this, he says, D-Day in World War II was a very decisive moment, right? So D-Day, June 6, 1944, the beaches of Normandy. So that was, that was a really decisive moment. And leading up to that was very intense. Could you imagine being a soldier and getting ready to, to land on the beaches of Normandy? That was such a decisive moment, over, uh, I think it's over 9,000 uh, Allied soldiers died in the first 24 hours alone. Over 9,000, just in the first 24 hours alone. But historians will look at that event and they'll say that was the decisive moment that tipped the scales in favor of the Allies. That moment. They can look back, Normandy, D-Day. Now, after that happened, there was still fighting. There were still many problems. There was still skirmish. But everyone really knew that it was only a matter of time before V-Day. So there's D-Day, then there's V-Day, which is Victory Day. And the way Coleman plays it out for us and, and how it relates to today's text is that you and I, we now, we are living in that era of human history between D-Day and V-Day. The decisive moment has happened on the cross, right? That triumph over sin, death, darkness, evil, despair, all those things. 
But V-Day, when Christ returns, isn't yet with us. So there's still happening, there's still stuff going on, there's still sin in the world, there's still, you know, Satan is wounded, but he's trying to do his best to bring down God's people. There's all these things going on, but the decisive moment has happened. So Jesus is feeling this intensity. The hour of his glorification is coming. And so just as those young soldiers were getting ready for the beaches of Normandy, so here is Jesus getting ready for the cross. Okay? So, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. A lot of farmers, huge agrarian society, people would have known what he was talking about. And then, in verse 25, he relates it to people. Whoever loses his, whoever loves his life, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Okay, so what's going on here? So this is kind of the central verse in, in the passage. And what really Jesus is saying here, and this is, this is the words of, of, of John Calvin, he says that, so that we as humans are naturally over-addicted to this present life. And so what Jesus is warning against is self-centeredness. It's a me-first way of living in the world. Unless you deal with that problem in your own hearts, You're never going to be able to respond to the most fundamental questions of human life. You're never going to be open to the wisdom of God because you are living with this self-centered way that your own ego is enthroned over your heart. Uh, One of the study Bibles I have that I know some of you have, it's called the Life Application Study Bible. It's an NIV. Here it says, we must disown the tyrannical rule of our own self-centeredness. I love that. We must dethrone the tyrannical rule of our own self-centeredness. So when Jesus says, whoever loses, loves his life, whoever, whoever just is so focused on their own comfort, on their own me first, on their own I want this, I want what, you know, their own God, that person is going to lose it. And actually this phrase could also be translated, it could be destroyed. It's a very firm thing that he says. But whoever hates his life, now that doesn't mean an emotion, it means whoever detaches himself from that me first way of living in the world that person will keep it for eternal life. So, so really the question is, 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 what would you rather have, 80 or 90 years of me first and perish, or would you rather have 80 or 90 years of God first for eternity? Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So a couple of things. So, okay, you, you want to believe in me? You want to know what life is? You, 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 want, you, you want wisdom for the biggest things that you're wrestling with? You should follow me. Oh, and by the way, and when you do that, and when you do the things that I do, you'll be honored by my heavenly Father. And so <clears throat> I just think this is a very direct way of, of speaking. Jesus' people will be doing the things that Jesus does. If Jesus is forgiving, Jesus' people will be forgiving. If Jesus is living a life of purity and holiness, his people will be living a life of purity and holiness. If Jesus is obedient to the scriptures, his people will be obedient to the scriptures. If Jesus is loving his enemies, his people will be loving their enemies. And then he says, you do that? And oh, by the way, the Heavenly Father will honor you. Now think of this, what's the greatest honor you've had in your life? Uh, maybe, maybe some award, maybe some accomplishment, maybe some you know, fancy person or famous person paid you this compliment. Imagine you go to the Olympics and you get first and you're on that podium and you're on the top podium right in the middle and someone puts that gold medal around your neck 
and, and, and people are cheering. And you know on the TV, your hometown is watching and people are so excited. There's tears of gladness. And you stand up there and, and, and your national anthem is sung. If we follow Jesus and do the sorts of things that he does, our Heavenly Father will honor us and the honor we will receive from him will literally outmatch anything we could experience on earth. What a gift to us. And so we're going to end our close look at the text there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. I want to highlight just three, three, three kind of takeaways from this text because, you know, in light of the, what I said about questions, when you have questions, people seeking um, serious answers and what, uh, what it teaches us. And the first is quite simply this. It's that serious questions deserve serious answers. And maybe that's obvious. Maybe we all know that. Okay, we get that. Uh, but I think we need to say it. Now look at the Greeks. The Greeks say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Granted, we don't know specifically what their questions were. They obviously had some. But Jesus knows. Right? Based on other scriptures, we know that Jesus is able to discern people's thoughts. He knows what's going on in them. And what does he do? He launches into a very heavy passage. This, this is the meat and potatoes that Jesus lays on them. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And in that one sentence, he's basically saying that if you want to follow me, if you want wisdom from God for the living of your life, you need to have a totally rearrangement of your priorities. Now, let's get to today. People are, are searching for serious uh, questions, serious answers. Is God real? Uh, is, is, is life uh, by design? Is it on purpose? Is there a plan for my life? Or, or, or are we all here um, because of randomness? It, you know, what about me? Does God have a purpose for my life? Is good able to come out of bad? Why do bad things sometimes happen to good people? Uh, why is there this pain in, in the world? Is my life on track? How do I know? How can I speak to God so that he can tell me to get it back on track? Right? All these questions that various people have. And something that worries me is when we shortchange ourselves and when we shortchange other people. Because they come looking for the wisdom of Jesus, or we do, and we trivialize who he is and what he has come to do. And therefore, we deprive ourselves of the serious fundamental questions and answers that people are searching for and that they have. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. What does he say? Does he say, don't worry, be happy? Does he say, you do you, live your truth? Oh, good. Does he say, we're here for a good time, not a long time? Doesn't say that. Follow me and you'll just be happy all the time. Doesn't say it. He gives them the straight goods. Second, what you win them with is what you win them to. Now, that's an expression. I don't know if you've heard it or not. What you win them with is what you win them to. So I can't attribute it to someone because I don't know really who, who came up with it originally. But the idea is, is this. Let's say that you're the principal of a high school and you have a really great sports program. And so you really emphasize your sports program and, and, and academics are important. But, you know, it's all about sports and you really focus. You've got this athletic culture and so many kids who go to your school, they go on to graduate with, with scholarships to colleges or universities. Well, those types of students who are interested in those sorts of things will go there and you'll feed that culture. Or let's say that you're online dating. Okay, you're online there and you're trying to, to, to you know, meet someone and you say, who, who are you? You put your picture up there. I love you know, laughter and traveling. Laughter and traveling. So you're, kind of, you're going to get matched up with people who like laughter and traveling, who are compatible with you in those ways. And so you know, let's say you get to go for some dates. Maybe you, you know, kind of the relationship works out. You expect that you're going to do a lot of traveling and you're going to have a lot of laughs and humor together, right? What you win them with is what you win them to. 
We're not helping people when we trivialize what it means to follow Jesus because sometimes people have serious questions about faith, about God, about their life. Maybe you have them, maybe someone you know and you care about has them. If we trivialize the kinds of things Jesus say, here's what happens. We promote a shallow version of Christianity that will produce shallow name-only Christians. If we're promoting a shallow version of Christianity, that will produce shallow name-only Christians. Following Jesus isn't about tweaking your life, it's about transforming your life. It's not about tweaking your life, it's about transforming your life. Another passage that is so beautiful, it's powerful, it is central to Christian identity, and it's in Mark 8, verses 34, 35. Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple and follow me, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever loves his life will lose it, you know. Take up a cross daily and follow me. People are searching for uh, answers. And if we give them empty calories, we are doing them no good service. Jesus provides meat and potatoes. He provides that bulk. And we are wise to only receive that for ourselves and to share it with others. Third and finally, you have to lose your ego to find God. You have to lose your ego to find God. Look what Jesus says to them. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What he's, what he's basically doing, he's cutting to the heart of the matter, and based on those words from that LASB study Bible, we must disown the tyrannical rule of our own self-centeredness. See, people who want wisdom, people who want answers, aren't going to get it if their ego is enthroned on their own hearts. And so people who cultivate humility, and humility comes up time and time again as a virtue in the New Testament and in the Bible as a whole, only those people who are truly humble are actually going to be able to get out of the way of their own ego and self-centeredness and say, wait a second, maybe that wisdom from God is actually better than what I was peddling on my own. And maybe we have some wisdom or something we want to share for someone else, but if we think we know better than God, what we're going to do is we're never going to find the answers that God's going to provide because we're always in the way. A newspaper once put out a question and invited readers to respond. Here was the question, what's wrong with the world? Now, like how many pages do you want? Like, um, so people are invited to actually write in answers to, to this newspaper and, uh, and they were going to publish some of the answers. Well, G.K. Chesterton, uh, who's an author, he wrote in a two-word response. What's wrong with the world? He said, I am. Now, clearly, when you look at all the problems in the world, there's more problems than Chesterton, right? But there is someone who grasps the significance of humility. He owns his own junk. He's like, you know what? (laughs) The only way I can really truly respond, if I'm going to be honest, is, is the sin and brokenness that I contribute to the issues around me. That's a person who is humble. You have to lose your ego to find God and to be open to the things that God wants to say. Let me just share this final thought. Uh, we live in a world, yes, where people are seeking uh, serious answers to serious uh, questions. Maybe you have some of them. Maybe other people you know have some of them. Well, uh, someone who gets a lot of questions is Siri. And so, um, you know, Siri, Siri, so those of you who don't know, Siri is like a virtual assistant that you get in Apple products, uh, the phones. I think you can get it in, the, in the, the tablets and stuff too. Anyway, so you have Siri and it's voice recognition. So it will respond to you. And a lot of the questions that, that people ask Siri are just regular questions. You know, Siri, what's the area code for Dallas? Siri, what's the population of Canada, right? Um, Siri, where did my kids hide the Halloween candy? You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Maybe not the last one. 
Um, actually, Siri gets, I looked this up, Siri gets um, approximately uh, over 822 million questions a day, that app. Over 822 millions of questions a day. Now, people ask these kind of random things, but people also ask serious, serious, very serious questions as well. Um, people ask Siri questions like, what is the purpose for my life? Um, why does love hurt so much? Will we ever have peace on earth, Siri? Well, of course, more thing, most things are more complicated than that. There's many things that Siri can't answer. Uh, but what Siri can't help you with, Jesus can. First, serious questions deserve serious answers. Second, what you win them with is what you win them to. We are not wise to trivialize who Jesus is and what he says, especially when dealing with the big issues in the world. Third, you have to lose your ego to find God. Amen.